As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Just a few days after Christmas, a family vacationing in St. Petersburg, Florida, made the grisly discovery of a human leg which had washed up on the beach. While investigators worked to determine who that leg might have come from and how it ended up in that place, they had no idea their investigation would kick off the search for two missing women. Kelly Moriarty and her longtime girlfriend Doris Carter hadn't been seen since nine days before the holiday, and neither would be reported missing until nearly a month into the new year. Four different agencies spread across three central Florida counties all had their own pieces of the investigation. An abandoned car in Manatee, the severed leg in Pinellas, and the missing women of Hillsborough. While investigators initially filed the belief that the two women had gone off together in the early morning hours of December 16th, the investigation would accumulate dozens of pieces of evidence, but nothing to suggest who might have been responsible, nor where the crime was committed. Had Doris faced the same fate as Kelly, killed and dismembered? Had the women been the victims of a random attack, or perhaps, might the answers lie disturbingly close to home? the home Doris shared with her daughter and son-in-law? This is Trace Evidence, Episode 168, The Murder of Kelly Moriarty and the Disappearance of Doris Carter. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we examine a truly disturbing case that began with two missing women and ended with murder and dismemberment. Before getting into the case, just a few notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. You can follow the show on social media on Twitter at TraceEvPod, Instagram at TraceEvidencePod, or by searching Facebook for Trace Evidence. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting some Trace Evidence merch, there's a Patreon at patreon.com slash traceevidence, 
or you can donate directly via PayPal. Visit trace-evidence.com for all social media links, donation options, and contact information. You can submit case suggestions through the website or email me directly at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. Kelly Moriarty and Doris Carter celebrated Thanksgiving together and locked in their plans to spend Christmas together as well. Before the end of the year, though, both women would mysteriously vanish, and to this day, the only trace of them ever found has been a severed leg on a St. Petersburg beach. This is episode 168, The Murder of Kelly Moriarty and the Disappearance of Doris Carter. The kaleidoscopic light surged and faded intermittently, a motley glow burning brightly amidst the crowns of palm trees. A winding trail of lights twisted round their trunks, working their way towards the dry earth, before the luminescence concluded at the point where dark wires slithered through the grass towards heated sockets. With each cycle of the circuits, the pre-dawn darkness was pierced by the rise and fall of a multicolored brilliance casting shadows of variegated color, like rainbow ghosts fogging across the gray pavement. Though Christmas had passed, many homes along the coast still clung to the last vestiges of holiday cheer, their lawns bathed in the shine of flashing lights overseen by the towering figures of inflatable snowmen swaying in the early morning breeze, salty as it swept in from the bay. As the horizon slowly emerged from the darkness, thin bands of dim light flared up from behind the rolling current of Tampa Bay as light winds drew white crests up from beneath the surface. A small family began their trek. Slow footsteps carried them along the thin stretch of road between the ocean and the park. Turning left through the tree line, the group spilled out onto the sand of the inlet, tucked between the jutting coastline of two points reaching out to the waves. Cool ocean air collided with the slowly warming morning, a humid wind sailing over skin stickied by the spray. The family gathered to watch the natural majesty of a sunrise, a vibrant orange aurora rising up beyond the horizon, the water itself seemingly gilded as the warmth and brilliance of the sun emerged like a diver from the deep. As the sun continued its ascent, the blazing glow splashed down along the shoreline, peeking through the masts and rigging of sailboats docked along the inlet. The tide swung out low, the white beach meeting dark, soaked sand which by afternoon would be swallowed whole back into the water. It was there, along the shore, that something caught the light at just the right angle to obscure its shape while simultaneously drawing attention to itself. Moving forward, the family were eager to uncover the mystery as they marched steadily towards the whitish silhouette outlined in the glow of sunrise. It appeared to be some form of driftwood, a sash of seaweed curled around the object pockmarked with sand and dirt. The overwhelming sense of adventure which had driven them to reach the shape began to slowly shift, the excitement replaced with a sense of urgency, the wonder with dread. While the morning continued to paint beautiful watercolor splashes beneath a quickly gathering cluster of graying clouds, the true horror was revealed. Lying there in a space between docks and boat launches was the pale white remnants of a human leg, 
slightly bent at the knee and cleanly severed at both the thigh and ankle. Terrified, the group quickly rushed away from the area, the screams of children echoing through the trees as they spilled back onto the pavement. Within minutes, investigators would arrive to examine and recover the limb while others took to the bay in search of any other parts that might have made their way into the water. At the time, investigators had no way to identify who the leg belonged to, nor how it had found its way into the waters of Tampa Bay. Soon, however, pieces of the story would start coming together, and detectives from four agencies spread across three counties would begin an intense search for two women who hadn't been seen in weeks and who at this time hadn't yet even been reported missing. That wouldn't happen until more than a month later, leaving investigators miles behind the answers they so desperately sought. Kelly Michelle Moriarty was born on Sunday, June 3, 1973, to parents Bud and Grace in Millbrook, New York, an upstate village located in Dutchess County. Kelly was the couple's fourth and final child, as well as being their only girl, growing up alongside three older brothers. One of Kelly's brothers, Brendan, described her to Crime Watch daily, saying, quote, She was just fun and outgoing, always trying to tag along with her older brothers wherever we went. End quote. Kelly was noted as having an infectious laugh, and both friends and family have stated that she was happy, always smiling and making others smile. From a young age, Kelly enjoyed playing with her brothers and acquired a quick affinity for athletics, with her father saying that she was probably the best athlete out of the whole bunch. Growing up in the small village of Millbrook afforded Kelly access to a lot of outdoor and sports activities, and she took full advantage of them. While she excelled in many different sports, her heart seemed most strongly attached to softball, and Kelly was an incredible force on the field, hammering in runs and making great plays. Throughout the late 80s and into the early 90s, Kelly's name appears in numerous articles where she is lauded for her hard work and remarkable skill level. Kelly would eventually join the Debs, a fast-pitch club which focuses on player development both on and off the field, and she would participate in multiple tournaments. In August of 88, Kelly stole the show at the East Fishkill Tournament with the Poughkeepsie Journal reporting that she had three hits in the finals, and was chosen as MVP of the entire tournament. By the time she moved on to high school, the teen had amassed an impressive record, with the journal specifically pointing out that, coming in as a freshman, she had a remarkable batting average of 460. In addition to her athletic abilities, Kelly maintained good grades and made a lot of friends who, in the years since, have made numerous posts on forums and websites about how great of a person she was and how much fun they had spending time with her. In 1990, when Kelly was turning 17, her family picked up stakes and left the Northeast for the sun and warmth of Florida. Upon arriving in the Sunshine State, the 17-year-old was enrolled in St. Petersburg Catholic High School, where she continued earning praise for her athletic abilities. Following graduation, she wasn't exactly sure about plans for college or what type of a career she wanted to pursue. Kelly moved through a series of different jobs, including working security at a bank for a period of time, but throughout it all, she continued to play ball in the adult leagues. Her parents, always strong supporters, traveled hundreds of miles to see her play, missing only one game in a span of six years. Due to her incredible skill, 
Kelly caught the eye of several colleges and was offered a handful of scholarships, but she turned them all down. Much like so many people her age, she hadn't yet figured out what she wanted to make out of her life. Not long after graduating, Kelly made a decision to sit down with her family and tell them a truth she had long since known. She was gay. Kelly's brother Brendan later told the Plant City Observer that this was a difficult step for the young woman, who had grown up in what he described as a more conservative family. As she aged, Kelly had grown to become an incredibly independent woman with a strong sense of privacy. Her family has said multiple times that when she wanted to talk, she could talk all night. But if she didn't want to discuss something or didn't want to get into the details, she had no problem closing down that line of communication. When it came to her sexuality, Kelly was determined to be who she was regardless of what others might think. According to her family, they wanted to see her happy, and when she came out to them, they felt even closer to her, knowing she could tell them anything. Over the next years, Kelly would move around the state of Florida, though never drifting too far from her family. She spent time in Tampa, Bradenton, Gulfport, and St. Petersburg, respectively. Eventually, in her mid-30s, Kelly found herself focusing in for the first time on a career that she really felt an affinity for, massage therapy. In 2009, at the age of 36, Kelly would meet a woman who would forever change the course of her life. One of her favorite spots to hang out was Georgie's Alibi, a gay bar in St. Petersburg that was wildly popular and cracked out magazine's list of the top 200 gay bars in 2013. It was here that she would encounter 59-year-old Doris Patricia Carter. Doris, or Pat as she preferred, was the widow of William Ed Carter, a former Hillsborough County Sheriff's deputy who passed away in 2005 after 33 years together. The couple had one child, a daughter named Stacy, and after his retirement from the force, they'd started their own business, Carter's Cast Nets. The business was wildly successful, and Pat was noted as having an amazing skill for constructing nets. In discussion with the Plant City Courier, Pat's brother Charles explained, quote, She sold them all over the United States and some out of the U.S. She sold them in Japan, China, Taiwan. She was really good at it, end quote. Pat and Ed had built a nice nest egg for themselves, and in the years following his passing, Pat continued to add to a financially successful estate, owning a home and some acreage in rural Plant City, located in west-central Florida. In the years following Ed's passing, Pat began going out a little more, seeing more of the world. She was lonely. Her companion of more than three decades was gone, and she sought out friends, fun, and hopefully, love. During a conversation with her brother, Pat steered the conversation around the block a few times before, much to Charles' surprise, she told him she was gay. Later, when speaking to Crime Watch Daily, Charles described the conversation, saying, quote, She says, Charlie, I ain't never been so happy in my life. I think I was gay all my life. End quote. While Charles himself wasn't expecting to hear that, he thought it was great that after all these years, his sister was getting to live life on her own terms, the way she wanted, and he hoped that she'd find happiness as she entered the second half of her life. It seemed to come as a surprise to both women when they found each other, but neither could deny the sparks were flying. 
Before long, what had begun as flirtation and attraction turned to romance and passion, and a strong relationship developed between them. It wasn't uncommon for the couple to spend long chunks of time together, with Pat staying at Kelly's apartment for a week or two, and then Kelly coming to stay in Plant City for a few weeks. They continued to frequent Georgie's alibi, now recognized not only as their favorite bar in the area, but also as the place that had brought them together. This same year, there were big changes coming for both women. Kelly decided to pursue a career in massage therapy, going on to enroll in classes at Florida College of Natural Medicine. For Pat, the changes were a little less positive, as her daughter was having financial problems. Following the foreclosure of her home, Stacy and her husband, Anthony Meralt, and their daughter moved in with Pat in Plant City. This arrangement put a lot of stress on Pat, who didn't necessarily want to give up her private space, but at the same time wanted to help out her daughter. Unfortunately, what began as a difficult situation would only worsen over the next few years. Bringing Kelly into the equation complicated matters further as, in the years since, it's been made abundantly clear that neither Stacy nor Anthony thought very much of Kelly. From their perspective, Kelly was nearly half Pat's age, and they've made several statements over the years indicating that they viewed the younger woman as someone who only sought to financially exploit her older girlfriend. Some of this may have come out of the fact that, at one point, Pat presented Kelly with a gift, a 1998 black Cadillac Katerra. By the end of the year, though, things took a violent turn, when on December 18th, Pat went to the court to petition an order of protection against both her daughter and son-in-law. Pat wrote in the petition that she often locked herself in her own bedroom to avoid the two of them, referring to Stacy as someone with whom she simply could not get along. The petition, however, was not drafted out of mere discomfort, but out of fear as, according to her own words, Pat described a physical altercation where her daughter, quote, pushed me out of my office chair on the floor, hurting my left wrist and thumb, end quote. Pat, however, would drop the petition 12 days later before a judge could make a decision on whether or not to make the temporary injunction a more long-term one. Over the course of the next year, things seemed to move along well enough, although the tensions at Pat's home would have its ebbs and flows, which in turn applied pressure to her relationship. For her part, Kelly was turning things around, earning straight A's while she attended massage therapy courses. According to her family, who helped pay tuition, she'd really found her niche, and for the first time in a long time, she felt like she finally knew what she wanted to do and where she wanted to be. In terms of her relationship, this was one of those areas where Kelly didn't share a lot of information with her family. Her mother, Grace, who later described Pat as a sweet woman who deeply cared for her daughter, explained to the Plant City Observer, quote, We didn't even know Pat's last name and I only met her once. When we'd ask Kelly, her response would be, why do you need to know? End quote. As far as her family knew, Kelly's relationship was going along smoothly, and there weren't any issues. Stacy, however, alleged that while the couple typically got along well, they also had a tendency to have loud arguments and fights, which seemed to be occurring more frequently as time went on. This is somewhat backed up by court documents. On Tuesday, April 26, 2011, Pat filed a petition requesting an order of protection against Kelly. 
According to the Tampa Bay Times, in her complaint, Pat alleged that an argument at Georgie's alibi grew physical and Kelly shoved and threatened her. Pat went on to claim that Kelly had stolen her deceased husband's wedding band and she insisted Pat be the one who paid for bills, nights out, and all expenses. As a result, a temporary injunction was issued and Kelly was required to hand over firearms she owned until the case was settled. Less than two weeks later, on Thursday, May 5th, Pat's petition was dismissed due to a lack of evidence. A week after that, on Thursday, May 12th, Kelly went to court and filed her own petition. The details seemed to be similar to Pat's initial claim, with Kelly alleging that Pat herself was controlling and had become physically violent, in addition to accusing her of drinking to excess and harboring a prescription drug addiction. She also noted that Pat was in possession of multiple firearms, including handguns, shotguns, and rifles, some of which had belonged to her late husband. When a hearing date was scheduled, Kelly decided to withdraw the petition, saying that the court dates would interfere with her job. For most who have examined these documents, it seems that the two had gotten into some kind of an altercation, lashed out through the legal system, and then changed their minds once cooler heads prevailed. Their relationship continued moving forward, but Kelly, it appears, may have been planning to leave it all behind. When speaking to the Tampa Bay Tribune, Kelly's father, Bud, explained that the two women apparently wanted something different out of the relationship. From what he knew, Kelly wasn't looking for anything to get too serious, and she certainly wasn't aiming to settle down yet, while Pat had, on several occasions, raised the possibility of marriage. Bud stated that his daughter had told him that upon completing her massage therapy courses, she wanted to leave Florida and go back to New York and open her own business. As far as anyone knew, Kelly wasn't planning on asking Pat to come with her, and ostensibly, following the holidays, they'd probably break up. As fate would have it, however, both women would mysteriously vanish before the end of the year. As the year moved forward, the tension between Kelly and Pat apparently dissipated, but the issues between Pat, her daughter Stacy, and her son-in-law Anthony were only getting worse. On Wednesday, October 26th, Pat filed a petition to have her daughter and son-in-law evicted from her home. In a handwritten letter, Pat wrote, quote, I, Doris Carter, request my daughter Stacy Meralt, husband Anthony Meralt, and granddaughter to vacate my premises immediately so to end an extended length of time undesirable to myself that these individuals have been occupying my residence, end quote. In response, Stacy and Anthony filed their own paperwork with the courts, arguing that Pat suffered from documented mental illness and that they believe Kelly was trying to take advantage of her for financial reasons. According to ABC News, their document read in part, quote, the defendants also fear that Carter will unwillingly allow Kelly Moriarty to further diminish her assets and life savings to zero, end quote. Stacy later told ABC that she believed the eviction petition was filed due to pressure applied by Kelly after she learned that Stacy had filed a complaint of elderly financial exploitation with the Department of Children and Families against her. The next month brought in the beginning of the holiday season, and Thanksgiving fell on Thursday, November 24th. Typically, Kelly would spend the holiday with her family, usually at her brother's home, but this year she decided to take a different approach. During a phone conversation with her mother, 
Kelly explained that she was going to instead spend Thanksgiving with Pat at her home in Plant City, and that the next month Pat would be coming to her apartment to celebrate Christmas. According to what we know, Thanksgiving went well, and several days after, in late November or early December, Grace spoke to her daughter for the last time. The two discussed Thanksgiving as well as Christmas, and at the time, there didn't appear to be anything out of ordinary or anything to worry about. On Thursday, December 15th, Pat's petition to have Stacy and Anthony evicted was granted by the judge. While this should have resulted in the process moving forward, that never happened. In fact, Stacy and Anthony would continue living in Pat's house on McLean Drive. Curiously, that same Thursday was the last time anyone ever saw Kelly and Pat alive. And even though both would vanish from sight on the 15th, no missing persons report would be filed until more than a month later. In the meantime, none of Pat's friends nor Kelly's family were seemingly aware of their disappearances. And while Stacy and Anthony continued living in her home, neither contacted authorities with regard to Pat or Kelly. Over the course of the next 10 days, two different law enforcement agencies would make discoveries that, at the time, they had no way of knowing were connected to the yet-to-be-reported missing women. On Monday, December 19th, a deputy with the Manatee County Sheriff's Office came upon what appeared to be an abandoned car parked on the side of State Road 62 in the unincorporated community of Parrish. Florida 62 runs approximately 40 miles from U.S. Highway 301 in the west to Highway 17 in the east. The vehicle, a black 1998 Cadillac Caterra, appeared to be in good condition with no outward signs of damage or an accident. When the deputy ran the plate through the system, the owner was identified as being Kelly Moriarty. However, since no missing persons report had yet been filed, there was nothing associated with the car to warrant further action. At that time, the deputy applied a red tag to the vehicle, which designated that it would be removed from the area. That wouldn't happen until 10 days later on Thursday, December 29th. Two days before the car was moved, though, investigators in St. Petersburg would be called out to the beach following a grisly discovery just 20 miles to the northwest of where the car had been found. On the morning of Tuesday, December 27th, a Canadian family vacationing in St. Petersburg took an early morning walk to watch the sunrise. They wound up standing on a beach behind a home on South 4th Street, adjacent to Bay Vista Park. By the time the sun had risen enough to light the morning, they made the horrifying discovery of a human leg lying on the beach, which had apparently washed in from the bay. At the time, the leg was described as being severed at the thigh and ankle, with the foot having been removed. According to investigators, outside of the locations where the cuts had been made, there were no obvious signs of trauma, though the Tampa Bay Times reported that there were mysterious marks circling the upper thigh. Investigators believe that determining the point at which the limb had been placed in the water could help in identifying who it may belong to. Detective Mike Pewitz of the St. Petersburg Police Department explained to 10 News, quote, Obviously, this was found in the bay, so there's a lot of different factors in terms of what jurisdiction this might have come from. It's a major shipping channel as well, so there are a lot of options in terms of the origin of the leg itself, end quote. 
Over the course of the next two days, investigators would take to the water searching for any other parts of the body, while others combed the shoreline looking for any other evidence. Ultimately, the extended searching resulted in no additional evidence related to the limb. Police stated that while they didn't have a cause of death, it was highly likely considering the mutilation of the leg that this would be connected to a homicide. When asked about how the leg had been severed, Detective Pewitz told the Tampa Bay Times that the medical examiner's office confirmed there was a human hand at work and that the limb had not been severed by an animal attack. Pewitz explained, quote, What they've told us verbally at this point is that it does appear that at least one end of the leg was removed by use of a tool, a cutting tool of some sort, end quote. Determining who the leg belonged to would be a much more difficult task. According to investigators, when the leg was found, it was believed to have belonged to a white woman described as heavyset. The leg was clean-shaven, which is why they thought it belonged to a woman, though at the time, they couldn't even confirm gender. In hopes of getting a hit, the medical examiner's office collected DNA from the leg and ran it through the system, but it came back with no matches. The medical examiner did, though, note that based on the condition of the leg, it had likely been in the water for no more than 72 hours. So police began going through known missing persons who had been reported in the previous weeks, but it would be difficult to make a solid connection. On Friday, January 27, 2012, one full month after the discovery of the leg, Brendan Moriarty received an unnerving phone call. Kelly's landlord reached out to him since he was listed on her lease as the emergency contact. At that time, the landlord explained that Kelly was three weeks behind on her January rent and no one had seen her at the Bradenton apartment complex since December. At the time, Brendan went to the complex where the landlord granted him access to Kelly's apartment. As soon as he entered, he knew something was wrong. The apartment itself was in good condition, though it was apparent that no one had been there in quite some time. The Christmas tree was still standing and there were presents wrapped beneath it. A newspaper lie on the couch dated December 8th, and milk in the refrigerator had expired on December 23rd. At that time, Brendan notified the Bradenton police and officially filed a missing persons report for his sister. When asked when anyone had last seen or spoken to Kelly, it was confirmed that her mother had spoken to her in the days following Thanksgiving, but no one had heard from her since early December, at the most recent. According to the family, it wasn't unusual for Kelly to go for extended periods of time without making contact. Grace later explained to the Plant City Observer that this wasn't uncommon, saying, quote, I'd call her and say, call me when you can, but that may not be for a month a month and a half. You have to realize she was 38. She wasn't a little girl. She spent Thanksgiving with Pat, and then I talked to her in December. We figured she just got busy or decided to spend Christmas with Pat. End quote. Unsure of when exactly Kelly was last seen, police were told about her relationship with Pat and that they often spent time at each other's places. That same day, investigators drove to Plant City, pulling up to Pat's home on McClinn Drive. There, they found both Stacy and Anthony in the house, which was somewhat strange in retrospect, since more than a month earlier, a judge had ruled in Pat's favor with her petition to have them evicted. When investigators spoke to Stacy, she stated that the last time she'd seen either her mother or Kelly 
was on the same day that judgment had come down, Thursday, December 15th. Details are a little sketchy here, but Stacy explained Kelly was at the house and she and Pat had gotten into an argument. In some articles, Stacy is noted as saying that she saw Kelly and Pat get into Kelly's Cadillac and drive off, while others report that Stacy went to bed late on the 15th or early in the morning of the 16th, and when she awoke the next day, her mother, Kelly, and the car were gone. When asked why no one had reported either woman missing, Stacy explained, much like the Moriarty family, that it wasn't uncommon for her mother to go off for periods of time without contact and that she often stayed with Kelly. The day after speaking with investigators on Saturday, January 28th, Kelly went down to the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office to file an official missing persons report for her mother. Investigators quickly discovered that Kelly's car was in the system having been stored in a Manatee County impound lot since December 29th. Detectives paid a visit to the lot at which time they examined the vehicle. There was nothing physically wrong with the car, which had been found locked, and the engine started right up, which suggested that the car had likely not been left by Kelly due to issues and may, in fact, have been dumped there by someone else. It's interesting to note that at the time, it was reported that no evidence was discovered in the vehicle, However, later when speaking to Crime Watch Daily, Detective Tom Dirks stated, quote, I can tell you that there was multiple things collected from the vehicle. At this point, I'm not at liberty to share with you the exact details of what was collected. End quote. Keep in mind, during this initial search, neither the Bradenton Police nor the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office were aware of the leg which had been found in St. Petersburg, and so... They were still working on a missing persons case without anything to suggest that they could potentially be looking at one or even two homicides. A second disturbing discovery, though, would finally bring all of the different angles together. We'll get to that after a quick word from this week's sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out BetterHelp.com Trace. Life is full of stressors. It doesn't matter who you are, what you have, your life is probably stressful. I know for me, it can be challenging to keep up with the demands of work, home, and family life while also trying to find time to unwind, clear my head, and just take a break from the everyday chaos that life throws at you. You may not be feeling down and out and depressed, or like you're at a total loss, but if your stress is high, your temper is shorter than usual, or even if you're starting to feel strain in any of your relationships, you could probably use the chance to unload. When there are things you can't tell anyone, or you feel like you can't unload to friends and family, you need to unload it somewhere, and that's what therapy can be. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Trace Evidence listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Trace. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P dot com slash trace. 
It's beginning to look like this summer might actually be normal, which it turns out is super refreshing. If you want your brain to feel like it's summertime all the time, download Best Fiends today. Best Fiends puts my brain on the fast track, like I'm flying down the street rollerblading with a delicious ice pop. Once you've started playing Best Fiends, you won't want to stop. Best Fiends is way more fun than the other matching puzzle games out there. You know, the ones where it's the same thing over and over. Best Fiends is one of those games that makes 30 minutes feel like 30 seconds, and it's totally free to download. With thousands of puzzles to solve, there's something new every day. Winning some sweet gold bundles along the way. Plus, I love gathering and leveling up my adorable little creatures for battle. Download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. In early February, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office reported that they had discovered the body of a deceased male behind a home in the town of Brandon. Initial reports in the media noted that this body had been partially mutilated and part of the victim was missing. Believing this could potentially answer the question about the leg found, St. Petersburg authorities reached out to the sheriff's office to ask if the victim was missing a leg. He wasn't. But when Hillsborough learned about the severed leg, and more specifically, the fact that it had been found just over a week after both Kelly and Pat vanished, they began to wonder if there might be a connection. On a hunch, investigators requested and were given DNA samples from Kelly's mother and Pat's daughter. Three weeks later, on Friday, March 23rd, the Pinellas County Medical Examiner positively identified the leg as belonging to Kelly Moriarty. At the time, they didn't have a cause of death, nor had they located the rest of Kelly's body, but police stated that while all signs indicated that Kelly had likely been killed, they couldn't at that time confirm that a homicide had actually taken place. The investigation now became a desperate search, with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office stating that locating Pat alive was of prime importance. Sheriff's spokesman Larry McKinnon explained to the media, quote, We'd like to find her alive and ask her what happened, but there's a possibility that might not happen. End quote. Six days later, on Thursday, March 29th, all agencies involved in the case came together for a meeting to share information and determine what exactly was going on. Present at the meeting were investigators from the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office, St. Petersburg Police Department, Manatee County Sheriff's Office, and the Pinellas State Attorney's Office. Because the case involved three separate counties, the investigation was divided based on who had jurisdiction in each area. Hillsborough's primary focus was to locate Pat. Manatee focused on trying to locate Kelly as well as conducting additional searches of the car. St. Petersburg took on canvassing, interviewing friends and family to try and learn more about each of the missing women and what might have happened to them. In addition to dividing up the investigation, it was noted that detectives had called in assistance from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, whose study and knowledge of tides and currents could help determine where Kelly's leg had been put in the water. At the time, while mutilation seemed apparent, no crime scene had been located, and so finding that would be a major help in solving the case. Kelly's family were struggling to accept the horror of reality. 
When they were informed that the DNA match confirmed the leg was Kelly's, they were absolutely devastated. They issued a statement to the media that they sought privacy and comfort during those early weeks. Their statement read, quote, The family was notified on Friday by Bradenton detectives of Kelly's passing. We are deeply saddened by the loss of our daughter, sister, and aunt. As you can imagine, the full extent of our loss has yet to be realized. We are in shock and are grieving Kelly's passing. We loved and miss her tremendously. It is our hope that the joint effort of the Bradenton Police, Manatee County Sheriff, St. Petersburg Police, and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement can quickly find whoever did this to her and bring them to justice and bring some closure to the family. We would ask everyone to please respect the privacy of the family and allow us to mourn Kelly's loss privately. End quote. While the Moriarty family were cooperating with the investigators and offering up everything they could in hope that answers would be found, the same could not be said of Pat's daughter and son-in-law. According to detectives, they answered questions during the early part of the investigation, but that would change. When police started asking questions about the relationship between Stacy and Pat, especially in regard to previous petitions for orders of protection and the eviction, the conversation ended. Early on, both Stacy and Anthony decided they wouldn't answer any additional questions on advice from their lawyer, to whom they told police to direct all future inquiries. In a rare statement to the media, Stacy explained to ABC News, quote, I'm overwhelmed. The dynamic of everything has completely changed. I wondered and questioned if anything bad has happened. I was hoping for the best. Did they go get married and she's afraid to tell me? I don't know if my mom has been taken advantage of or if someone is exploiting her in some way. Her mental and physical faculties aren't there. Knowing that Kelly's been harmed changes everything. End quote. During the early part of the investigation, detectives began looking suspiciously towards a man and a woman who had been arrested by a Sarasota deputy on December 26th, the day before Kelly's leg was recovered. 45-year-old Anthony Brigitzer and 27-year-old Kelly Rozier were pulled over by Deputy Matthew Tuggle when he noticed their white Lincoln sedan driving erratically in the 4100 block of South Tamiami Trail in Venice, approximately 35 miles south of where the Cadillac was found and 45 miles southeast of where Kelly's leg was discovered. Upon pulling the van over, a drug dog indicated the presence of drugs in the vehicle. During the search, police discovered marijuana as well as syringes, and both occupants were taken into custody. Upon opening the trunk to conduct a search, police found a stun gun, two hatchets, one of which had blood on it, a knife, latex gloves, black gloves, and black clothing. The hatchets captured investigators' attention as in April of 2012, University of South Florida anthropologist Aaron Kimmerly examined Kelly's leg, and according to the Sarasota Herald Tribune, Kimberly stated that the marks on the bone were more consistent with a, quote, chopping motion than a cutting and or slicing motion, end quote. Police documents note it was, quote, very possible that Kelly had been dismembered with a hatchet. Further investigation determined that Brigitzer had brutally attacked 70-year-old Mary Corbett prior to his arrest. Brigitzer had reportedly worked as a handyman for the elderly woman. Upon entering her home, 
Brigitzer used the stun gun on Corbett and then tied her wrists and legs before robbing her. He faced additional charges related to assault, kidnapping, fraud, and dealing in stolen property. While they managed to find the evidence necessary to file charges for this crime, they were never able to establish a connection between Brigitzer and either Kelly or Pat. With an absence of solid suspects, no crime scene, and no trace of Pat, investigators began turning their attention towards Stacy and Anthony. According to detectives, when asked about Kelly and his mother-in-law, Anthony stated that he hated both women. When asked about this, in addition to legal issues between Pat and the couple, Larry McKinnon told CBS Tampa Bay, quote, Those are all red flags in a lot of people's minds, but it certainly doesn't rise to the level of you're the one that's committed a homicide, end quote. In hopes of determining what might have happened, investigators planned a search of the McLean Drive home. Stacy granted permission for the search, which took place in October, 10 months after Pat and Kelly were last seen. A forensics team, along with deputies, searched the home for the first time for approximately six hours. A second search was conducted not long after. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Forensics technicians combed over every inch of the home, spraying luminol and collecting fibers. Multiple bags of evidence were removed from the house following each search, though what exactly was discovered has never been revealed. However, it was noted that some of the evidence had been sent out to a lab to undergo additional testing. The next month, in November of 2012, the Moriarty family spoke to the media to announce a $5,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction. Kelly's brother, Brendan, discussed the family's hope for answers, saying, quote, Not knowing, that's the hardest thing of all. You see all these things on TV, but you don't think anything like this can ever happen to your family. I don't know if we'll ever know the why, but we hopefully can find out the who. We want to see someone brought to justice for this. End quote. While talking to the Tampa Bay Tribune, the family made it clear that they believed both Kelly and Pat were likely dead, and it was their belief both women had been killed in or near Plant City between December 16th and December 26th. Asked why they believed the crime occurred in Plant City, the family explained that detectives had told them that both women's cell phones were last pinged approximately one mile north of Plant City, and following that, the phones were either powered off or destroyed. The family also argued that Kelly's Cadillac had likely been abandoned by someone involved in the crime, hoping to confuse the investigation by leaving the vehicle in a different county. Bud explained, quote, Kelly would never have left her car on the side of the road. She had law enforcement training, and if her car had trouble, she would have locked herself and Doris in and called 911, AAA, or someone in the family. End quote. Unfortunately, while investigators continued working the case, things began to stall. Over the course of the next year, detectives focused in closely on Stacy and Anthony, digging into their backgrounds and working to track their whereabouts and behaviors in the days before and after the disappearances. Little information was revealed regarding what they were seeking, nor what they had discovered, and Sheriff spokesman Larry McKinnon later told reporters, quote, We have a lot of pieces to the puzzle, but not the pieces that we need to come to a conclusion, end quote. 
During the same time period, Kelly's father, Bud, took it upon himself to conduct his own investigation and to try and get more attention on the case. He began writing letters to Congress, police departments, and reporters. Finally, in frustration, anger, and grief, the Tampa Bay Times published Bud's letter to the editor, which began, quote, I am writing this letter because I believe that Doris Carter's daughter and son-in-law are people of interest in the murder of our daughter, Kelly Moriarty, and the disappearance of Doris Carter. I don't believe that Doris is still alive, but I'm not positive because not a trace of her has ever been found. End quote. Bud went on to explain that it was his belief that both women had likely been killed dismembered, and weighed down with heavy fishing nets before being dropped into Tampa Bay. He pointed to the cell phone pings a mile north of Plant City before completely going offline, as well as the fact that the last time anyone saw either woman, it was Pat's daughter Stacy at Pat's McLean Drive home. Beyond that, he expressed frustration with Stacy's failure to fully cooperate with investigators asking why she would choose to hire a lawyer and not answer questions if indeed she was worried about her mother's well-being. Over the course of the next few years, few developments were made in terms of solving the case. In December of 2014, three years after Kelly and Pat were last seen alive, the Tampa Bay Times sat down to interview Bud and Grace, as well as speaking with investigators about updates. Detectives stated that the case had not grown cold, but noted while they had accumulated new evidence and information, they had not yet gotten enough to file charges against anyone. In the previous 36 months, detectives had conducted multiple searches, two at Pat's home, one in the area around where the car had been found, and others in the bay and along the shore. They had compiled a seven-volume investigative file, but much of the evidence was circumstantial at best. When asked about potential persons of interest, Major Yura of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office stated that their focus was primarily on Stacy and Anthony Meralt. Major Yura explained, quote, The Meralts are not cooperating in this investigation and haven't for some time. The lack of cooperating has not helped us. I don't think I'm quite there to name them as suspects, but certainly they haven't helped. End quote. According to Major Yura, there were several pieces of information which made Stacy and Anthony stand out for them as potentially having more information about the crimes than they had admitted. Firstly, in late December, between the time of the disappearances and when Kelly's leg was recovered, Stacy's cell phone pinged off several cell towers which placed her in both South Tampa and St. Petersburg in the vicinity of the Gandhi Bridge. For the record, that bridge crosses Tampa Bay, connecting St. Petersburg to the South Tampa area, and is 12 miles north of where Kelly's leg was found. In addition to this, surveillance footage showed that in late December, before Pat had been reported missing, Stacy entered the bank and accessed her mother's safe deposit box, withdrawing items from it. What exactly was taken, if known, has never been revealed but in response, authorities froze Pat's financial assets moving forward. Following up on the story, the Tampa Bay Times reached out to Stacy herself, who actually did answer some of their questions. When asked why she had hired a lawyer and wasn't cooperating, she replied, quote, It's not a matter of me trying to avoid anything. I'm the only person that's ever had her best interests at heart. End quote. Stacy went on to explain that, 
She had a theory of what might have happened to her mother, though she wouldn't share all of the details, saying only that she believed the crime may have been drug-related. She also expressed again her belief that her mother's attempts to evict her were a result of Kelly pushing her to do so, arguing that Kelly was exploiting her mother in an attempt to gain control of her financial assets. Stacy went on to deny any connection to the crime, saying, quote, I know 100% that I was not involved in this. There is so much more to this than anyone understands. I know I love my mother, and I know it's my place to protect her. End quote. Over the next years, Bud continued working to raise awareness for his daughter's case, as well as Pat's disappearance. He developed a friendship with Charles Wade, Pat's brother, but his frustration with the slow progress of the official investigation was made very clear. He noted that he had heard little from police since the early half of their investigation, though they claimed to have been in contact with him often. Bud expressed how important it was to see an arrest made for the case to progress, as they couldn't get their daughter back and they'd never get over the loss, saying, quote, This has been a living hell for Grace and I. We just pray for justice. We know Kelly is never coming back. We know she's gone. The only thing we have left is justice. End quote. When asked about Stacy and Anthony, he stated that it didn't seem either was interested in helping investigators nor seeing the case solved, asking, quote, If they want this case solved, why wouldn't they talk to law enforcement? Stacy should want this solved as much as we do. It's her mother. End quote. In March of 2017, five and a half years into the investigation, Bud and Grace had hit a wall with Grace pleading for assistance from the public, telling the media, quote, Bud and I have done all that we can do, and someone out there has to say something. Just one more tip, one more piece of the puzzle, and we've got it done. End quote. Later that same month, Crime Watch Daily conducted interviews for two segments on the case. Pat's brother Charles expressed his belief that his niece, Stacy, had been involved in the murders of both Pat and Kelly, saying, quote, She didn't want my sister to marry Kelly because she thought that she'd be cut out of the will for anything or any cash or any land. End quote. Grace explained that, as far as she had been made aware, Stacy told investigators that Pat and Kelly had been arguing the night they disappeared. Allegedly, Stacy went on to suggest the probability that Kelly had murdered Pat, which seems like a strange suggestion since Kelly is the only one of the two for which there's any evidence to confirm that a homicide took place at all. Bud added to this, saying that, according to his information, in the days following the disappearances, Anthony had allegedly gone into a local pawn shop and sold off pieces of Pat's jewelry as well as several of her guns. Brendan expressed his family's frustration with the lack of progress, saying, quote, The fact right now is that someone's out there that literally cut my sister into pieces that has not been charged, not been arrested. There's been absolutely nothing accomplished at this point in finding out who did this to my sister. End quote. Unfortunately, over the past four years, there have been no new stories, new information revealed, or any major developments announced. At certain times, law enforcement have referred to Stacy and Anthony as persons of interest, but at other times, they've chosen not to use that label. Bud Moriarty was determined to find justice for his daughter, but tragically passed away in February of 2019. 
Over the years, he compiled thousands of pages of information on the case, dedicating his life to finding answers, a search which sadly ended before it could be completed. Grace is now 83 years old, and much of the push for justice lies on the shoulders of the couple's three sons, who hope to find out what truly became of their sister. Doris Patricia Carter and Kelly Michelle Moriarty were last seen alive during the evening hours of Thursday, December 15th, or the early morning hours of Friday, December 16th, 2011, in Plant City, Florida. When last seen, Kelly was described as being a white female with brown eyes and short black hair, standing 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighing approximately 150 pounds. Kelly's car, a black 1998 Cadillac Catera, was found abandoned in Parrish, Florida on December 19, 2011. A week later, on December 27th, one of Kelly's legs washed up on the shore in St. Petersburg. It had been severed with some kind of cutting tool at both the thigh and ankle. No other pieces of her body have ever been discovered. At the time of her disappearance, Kelly was 38 years old, and if she had been alive today, she would be 48. Doris Patricia Carter is described as being a white female with brown hair and hazel eyes, standing 5 feet 1 inch tall and weighing approximately 110 pounds. Doris often goes by the name Pat. She has a surgical scar on the right side of her abdomen and a tattoo of a cross with wings on the back of her neck. Her ears are both pierced. When last seen, Pat was 61 years old, and if alive today, she would be 71. Neither woman's cell phone has had any activity since December 16th when they were pinged one mile north of Plant City. There's been no activity on either social security number or bank account, and while Pat is officially listed as endangered missing, it is believed that she too was likely the victim of a homicide, just like Kelly. It's been 10 years since Kelly Moriarty and Pat Carter vanished from Plant City, Florida. Over those 10 years, many pieces of evidence have been discovered and several theories have been developed, but investigators still lack the major pieces they need to make an arrest. Over that decade, the Moriarty family has stuck close to investigators, asking for updates and wanting to do what they can to assist, while Major Yura of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has stated that Pat's daughter Stacy has never contacted them to inquire about the progress on the investigation. For a decade now, the Moriarty family has fought for both women while trying to suppress their own grief. They had Kelly's leg cremated, and a small urn sits on the dresser in their bedroom beside a picture of their beloved daughter. Before he passed, Bud was asked about the case and whether or not he believes the family will ever receive closure. Bud replied, quote, there's no such word as closure. We'll live with this until the day we die. But all I'm praying for, and Grace is praying for, and our family is praying for, is that we get some justice for these two women. Are you stressed? Tired? Just don't feel like or have the energy to cook a whole meal? You know, food that's fast doesn't have to be fast food. Because thanks to Freshly, you can have a delicious, healthy meal without having to do the work. Freshly offers chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door, and there's no cooking required. Grocery shopping and cooking can be a pain, especially right now. 
And with Freshly, you don't have to. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week so you can keep your fridge stocked and skip the trip to the store. Ordering is easy. Visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like sausage-baked penne, chicken pesto bowls, or my personal favorite, steak peppercorn. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners of Trace Evidence $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash Trace. Stop stressing about dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash Trace for $40 off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash Trace for $40 off your first two orders. Remember the way it felt as a kid when you were tucked safe and secure into bed? Or how it feels today to be wrapped up in the arms of someone who cares and wants to see you safe? It's a feeling of security that only comes through a human connection. And that's why the people of Simply Safe Home Security are so important. Simply Safe is the easiest security system I've ever installed. I personalize it to fit my needs, adding sensors to doors and windows, and the whole process takes less than 15 minutes. I love the way the system notifies me with a chime each time a door or window is open, so I always know what's going on. There's no trading the comfort of feeling safe and secure in your own home. Of course, Simply Safe has an award-winning system that has all the technology bells and whistles you'd expect these days, but the people at Simply Safe really take it to the next level. They're there around the clock anytime you need them. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it easy. It takes about 2 minutes to customize a system on their website, simplysafe.com/trace. To learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect you and your family, Visit simplysafe.com slash trace today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com slash trace. Have you ever found yourself carrying a credit balance that just feels like an anchor around your neck? You dread looking at your card statements and feel absolutely crushed by the number at the bottom of the report. Well. You're definitely not alone. However, there are ways to help alleviate some of that weight, and Upstart can lend the helping hand that you need. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to boil it all down to one fixed monthly payment. With just a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day later, no waiting around to start cutting down that number. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com trace. That's upstart.com trace. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. One loan amount will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your application. Go to upstart.com trace. Pat Carter and Kelly Moriarty mysteriously vanished from Plant City, Florida on December 16, 2011. Eight days later, Kelly's car was found abandoned on the side of a rural road in the community of Parrish. Two days after that, 
one of Kelly's legs washed up on the beach in St. Petersburg. Despite multiple searches of homes, land, and the bay, a decade later, police are no closer to filing charges, and what exactly occurred that cool December night has never been determined. This is a case which spans three counties and four different law enforcement departments and shows a dramatic dichotomy between the behaviors and actions of each family. While the Moriarty's have been outspoken and heavily involved, seeking justice for both women, Pat's daughter has said little publicly, and both she and her husband have retained a lawyer. While investigators have stated they'd love to ask them questions, they haven't had the access to do so. They lack the legal leverage to force a conversation and have acknowledged that, due to the evidence they've collected, their investigation has primarily focused in on Stacy and Anthony as potential persons of interest. Despite the disturbing nature of the crimes, the behaviors of those involved, and what evidence is known to exist, this is a case which has not received a lot of coverage. That may spin out of the fact that there have been few theories which have ever been suggested, and those which have been brought up have been posited by the Moriarty family as well as Pat's brother. Law enforcement themselves have never said much about what they believe might have happened. As a result, there really are only two different angles to look at. That Pat and Kelly were the victims of a crime perpetrated by someone whose name has never been stated publicly or perhaps has never crossed the desks of investigators, or that Pat's daughter Stacy and her husband Anthony possess more information about the crime or perhaps were directly involved. Rather than taking each theory and working them separately, I think in this case it might make more sense to move through what we know and see what shakes out in the end. Beginning with Kelly and Pat, there appears to be two different sides to their relationship. For Kelly's family, they believe that things were going well and the couple, for the most part, were happy. While it seems Kelly may have told her parents that she was looking to move back to New York and end her relationship with Pat, as far as we know, they were still romantically linked at the time they disappeared, having spent Thanksgiving together and with plans to celebrate Christmas together. Court documents, however, show that in the months prior to their disappearances, the relationship was hitting some rough patches. Pat filed for an order of protection against Kelly, alleging that she'd become physically violent with her and was using her for her money. When that case was dismissed due to a lack of evidence, Kelly filed for her own order of protection, alleging that Pat had a drinking and drug problem. This petition, too, was later dismissed. At the same time, Pat's daughter Stacy and her husband Anthony had alleged that Kelly was trying to take advantage of Pat, who they described as suffering from documented mental illnesses. Simultaneously, Pat was filing her own court documents against Stacy and Anthony, seeking to have the couple evicted from her home where they had been living since their own home was foreclosed on two years earlier in 2009. Now, what captured my attention, and I imagine yours as well, was the fact that Pat and Kelly disappeared within a 12-hour window of December 15th, the very day the judge ruled in Pat's favor, approving her petition to evict Stacy and Anthony. When a detective was later asked about their conversations with Stacy and Anthony, he noted that while more than 30 days had passed since the judge's ruling, there was nothing to suggest that either of them had packed a bag or was looking for a new place to live. Seemingly, with Pat gone, the eviction would no longer be enforced. Four days after the women were last seen, Kelly's cars found abandoned near the community of Parrish, approximately 55 miles southwest of the McLean Drive home. A week later, Kelly's leg washed up on the beach in St. Petersburg, 
25 miles to the northeast of where the car had been located. Police later stated that pings on Stacy's cell phone placed her in the area near the Gandhi Bridge, which runs from St. Petersburg across the old Tampa Bay to the South Tampa area. It's important to note that the bridge is just over 11 miles north of where Kelly's leg was found. This bridge is also 46 miles southwest of Pat's home. Essentially, if you plot the points of Pat's home, the shore in St. Petersburg, and State Road 60 in Parrish on a map, you end up with an isosceles triangle dipping into three separate counties and spanning 92 square miles of ocean and land. I can't help but note that if you left the home on McLean Drive and headed straight for the Gandhi Bridge, you'd cross over into St. Petersburg, from which you could continue southwest to the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, which turns east and connects to the Florida mainland just eight miles west of where Kelly's abandoned car was found. From there, it's a drive northeast back to McLean. In total, that round trip would cover 210 miles and take approximately two hours if no stops were made. That's not exactly an impossible trip to make and could have easily been done faster and more efficiently during the night when there are less drivers on the roads. Now, does that make up enough evidence to point a finger? No, but it's worth taking into consideration along with everything else. I think a key point in this case comes down to when each of the women was reported missing. Kelly was reported missing to the Bradenton police on January 27th after her landlord contacted her brother saying that she was three weeks late paying her rent and no one knew where she was. The Moriarty family's been quite clear. Kelly was a notoriously private person and oftentimes would be out of contact for weeks or even months. She lived in an apartment on her own and was 38 years old. Her family didn't find it necessary to try and keep tabs on her, so when they hadn't heard from her throughout the holiday, they found it odd, but not necessarily out of place. Now, look at the other side. Stacy and Anthony lived in Pat's home. The only way she could be out of contact with them would be by leaving the house and not answering her phone, something she could have done. However, does no one find it odd that Stacy states she last saw both women on December 16th, but didn't file a missing persons report when her mother hadn't returned home for over a month? Not to mention, it doesn't appear Pat took any of her belongings or clothing with her, certainly nothing that would suggest she was planning to be away for a long period of time. Add into that, Christmas passed during this time, and no one found it odd that Pat wasn't there for the holiday, even if only to present her granddaughter with a gift? Then there's this detail which sticks in my mind. Pat fought to get her daughter and son-in-law evicted. When that petition was granted by a judge, wouldn't it be kind of strange for Pat to decide, hey, this is a good time to go off for a month without telling anyone? If she was so eager to see them evicted, it's hard to believe she wouldn't have been on the phone with the sheriff's department within days asking them to come to her home and enforce the eviction. I mean, that's not just me, right? It simply doesn't make any sense to me that someone would fight to evict someone else and then choose not to enforce it, instead going off for more than a month without any follow-up. So, while the Moriartys didn't know Kelly was missing, Stacy and Anthony at a minimum knew Pat left without any belongings, without her car, and never came home. Stacy didn't file a missing persons report until January 28th, the day after Bradenton police arrived looking for Kelly. It's quite clear the relationship between Pat and Stacy was strained, to say the least. 
In at least one court document, Pat described her daughter as someone she simply couldn't get along with. There was at least one instance of physical violence alleged in which Pat claimed to have been shoved out of her chair, falling and injuring her wrist and thumb. Then, after the missing persons report was filed, Stacy and Anthony spoke to investigators. According to them, Anthony says that he hated both Kelly and Pat. A weird thing to say to detectives about two people who haven't been seen in over a month. Not to mention, you've been living with one of them for two years. Stacy allegedly theorizes that Kelly may have been responsible for Pat's disappearance, and yet it's Kelly's leg that washes up on the shore. No trace of Pat has ever been found. Once investigators began turning up the heat, everything changes. Both daughter and son-in-law retain a lawyer and choose not to answer any questions moving forward, at least not unless their lawyer is present to field them. Hell, at one point, Stacy told reporters she couldn't answer any of their questions on the advice of her lawyer. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's ever smart to speak to police without a lawyer if you're being looked at for a crime. But at that time, that doesn't seem like what was happening. Unless, of course, one of them, or both, believe they might be viewed as suspects for one reason or another. It's purely speculative to wonder about that, but there's only so many conclusions you can draw from the choice made. While the Moriartys did everything they could to help with the investigation, Stacy and Anthony were not being helpful at all. At the same time, when investigators requested access to search the McClin Drive home, Stacy agreed to allow them to do so on two separate occasions. Stacy has argued that she has nothing to hide, nor was she involved in her mother's disappearance or Kelly's murder. While police did pull multiple pieces of evidence out of the home, They've never commented on exactly what it was nor what it might suggest about Pat and Kelly's fate. They also acquired items from Kelly's car, though again, they've stated they won't comment on the evidence of an open investigation. Whatever it was, it seems quite apparent it's not been enough to advance the case nor file any charges. Now, according to Kelly's father, Bud, Pat's son-in-law arrived at a pawn shop where he sold off pieces of Pat's jewelry as well as firearms which belonged to her. I haven't seen any official confirmation about that, at least not from law enforcement, but if that is true, it certainly doesn't help paint either person in a good light. Add into that that police have stated that surveillance footage showed Stacy accessing Pat's safety deposit box within two weeks of her disappearance. Doesn't that seem like strange behavior? Sure, there could have been a perfectly legitimate reason for this action, but police didn't seem to agree since they froze Pat's financial assets once they discovered that the safe deposit box had been procured. It's unfortunately one of those frustrating situations where the evidence that exists seems to cast suspicion in only one direction, but none of that evidence that we are aware of can directly connect to what may have happened to Kelly and Pat. There are several key pieces missing, pieces which could help move this case along. The crime scene has never been located. If the crime is going to potentially involve the dismemberment of two human beings, then you're talking about a spot which would be incredibly difficult to cover up. This isn't the kind of crime you could commit in your home or garage without leaving something behind. We know luminol was used inside the McClin Drive home, but there's never been a report of any traces of blood being found. We know both women's phones pinged approximately one mile north of Plant City, but this is a very rural area, and as you head north of the city, there's a lot of farmland, nature preserves, and swamps. It seems safe to assume that were they mutilated somewhere in that area, 
The crime scene itself may have been outside, and with more than a month passing before the investigation began, tracking down that location or finding physical evidence that hadn't been damaged or destroyed by the elements would be a monumental task. So, where does all this information lead us? Well, to a confusing and convoluted crossroads. Down one avenue, you have Stacy and Anthony, or one or the other. Neither's ever been charged. Neither's ever been named as a suspect. Stacy was apparently the last person to see the women alive, though whether or not she saw them leaving in Kelly's car, as some reports say, or if she woke up the next morning and both were gone, has really never been confirmed. Is there enough there to make your average person suspicious? Absolutely, and I don't blame anyone who sees them as the best potential persons of interest, as Bud Moriarty truly believed them to be. At the same time, not reporting Pat missing doesn't necessarily mean they were involved. Considering the tension between mother and daughter, it may have just been out of anger or perhaps a lack of care or concern. Hiring a lawyer, while viewed by many as an odd choice, would, at the same time, be something any lawyer would advise you to do. If you feel like the police aren't just trying to fill in the blanks of a missing persons case, if you think you might be under suspicion, hiring a lawyer is the smart thing to do. However, to go a decade without putting up flyers, without going on news stations and discussing the case, to seemingly not really doing anything to help find answers does seem bizarre. While someone might view that information as being clearly indicative involvement in the crime, that's certainly not enough to get a warrant. At the same time, there's nothing illegal about having a bad relationship with your parent and perhaps not really caring. It's not illegal to act like an asshole. Stacy herself has said she wasn't involved and, in her mind, her mother's disappearance and Kelly's murder are somehow tied to drugs. I'm not really sure how this all ties in, though I do think it's worth noting that while Stacy and Anthony apparently despised Kelly, she too made allegations that Pat was addicted to prescription drugs. Could this be a situation in which she somehow got in over her head with the wrong people and things went south? Sure. I guess the problem is, over 10 long years, not a single person has ever tried to point the finger at someone else to work out a deal on drug charges. Normally, when drugs are involved, eventually someone gets caught, and rather than face a long sentence, they'll happily give up friends and associates for a better deal. Strange that hasn't happened here. At the same time, can you rule out that anyone else could have done this? Not really. We all know that police often possess more information than they share with the public. Usually they have some additional evidence, maybe witness statements or information from informants which they choose not to reveal in order to protect the integrity of the case. In this situation, we don't know exactly what they have or what they might be concealing, but I do think that even years after the investigation began, they acknowledged that it focused primarily on Stacy and Anthony. You'd imagine if they had other avenues to pursue, they'd probably be doing that. I'd really love to know what you think because admittedly, it has been remarkably difficult for me to try and maintain an unbiased perspective while looking at this theory. Ten years have passed since Doris Patricia Carter and Kelly Michelle Moriarty vanished from Plant City, Florida. While one of Kelly's legs has been recovered, confirming that she was the victim of a homicide, not a single trace of Pat has ever turned up. 
I do find it interesting that Bud and Pat's brother, Charles, both believe that Stacy and Anthony were somehow involved, and the mention of them possibly wrapping the dismembered bodies in heavy fishing nets before dumping them into Tampa Bay is a haunting image that you can't shake off easily and is also oddly specific. Sadly, I think, it's unlikely the rest of Kelly's remains or Pat's body are ever going to be found, especially if they ended up in the bay and that will make justice much more difficult to obtain. Unfortunately, this case seems to have hit a wall, and while investigators have argued they haven't given up and do believe they will crack it after 10 years, it's beginning to seem like that chance becomes slimmer with each passing day. Sadly, without more information, technological advancements finding new ways to analyze the current evidence or the discovery of new evidence the murder of Kelly Moriarty and the disappearance of Doris Carter will remain open, unsolved, and growing cold. If you're looking for more information about the murder of Kelly Moriarty and the disappearance of Doris Carter, many newspapers in Florida have written about this case. Crime Watch Daily also did two segments which are available for viewing on YouTube. If you have any information about the murder of Kelly Moriarty and the disappearance of Doris Carter, please contact the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office at 813-247-8200. You can also contact the Florida Department of Law Enforcement at 850-410-7000. What do you believe happened? Tweet me at TraceEvPod, message me on Instagram at TraceEvidencePod, email me at TraceEvidencePod at gmail.com, or comment in the Facebook group. Trace Evidence would not be possible without support from amazing listeners like you. And now I'd like to take a moment to thank our fantastic Patreon producers, Alicia Lorraine, Anne Bertram, Aurora K, Bacon Bits the Cat, Brittany Bivens, Christine Greco, Krista Colvin, Dave Allen, Denise Dingsdale, Diane Dyson, Eric Sumpter, Guillerme Pinto, Heather Louise, James, Jen Treb, Jennifer Winkler, Joni Berkwitz, Kara Moreland, Marla Wright, Melissa Brakaisen, Nick Mohar Schurz, Orange Patches, Quinn McBreen, Roberta Jansen, Sarah Levonen, Sarah Mascaratolo, Sarah Lyons, Travis Skepko, Stephanie Joyner, Stephanie Eve, Tom Archer, Tom Radford, Tracy Woods, and Walter Jansen. Your contributions to Trace Evidence are invaluable, and your support of the show is both appreciated and extremely humbling. If you're interested in supporting Trace Evidence and gaining access to exclusive merch and ad-free episodes, please visit patreon.com slash traceevidence or go to trace-evidence.com and click on the support option. That's going to conclude this week's episode. If you haven't already, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Five stars would be greatly appreciated, but it's up to you. Share these episodes, spread the word, and maybe together we can help bring justice to those who have been deprived of it. Thank you all once again for listening, supporting the show, and for being the best listeners a podcaster could ask for. Thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.